This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today, my guest is Sarah Kelly. Since 2018, Sarah has worked as a registered nurse at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, focusing on inpatient pulmonary medicine. She also worked as a patient care technician for St. Joseph Mercy Healthcare System in Southeast Michigan. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. So when I think about nursing, I think about an unparalleled intimacy, right? Nurses attend to patients when they're in very vulnerable states, be it, you know, crying to vomiting to even, you know, dying. So is this closeness uh, in nursing something you embrace or something you cope with? Uh, For me, it's definitely something that I embrace. That's one of the things that I uh, loved about nursing and why I chose to go into nursing as my career um, compared to any other area of medicine or area in the healthcare field. I feel like nurses get uh, an extreme closeness with patients. We get to talk to them. They really open up to us unlike any other profession. Um, and so, yeah, I really enjoy being able to really create that relationship with my patients every day. Yeah, when I, when I think of this patient intimacy, I always think of a, a funny story I had. I was working at Halo Pub Ice Creams uh, in, in Prince, New Jersey, best ice cream in the world. And I was talking to a woman who came in regularly, and her daughter was a nurse. And she was saying how, you know, as time went on, she, she wanted to, you know, graduate out of these hands-on tasks. And, and she didn't like... Uh, the word she used was she didn't like wiping butts. Um, and I said, well, oh, I mean, I think some people sort of embrace that, right? And then she gave me, like, the funniest look in the world, like, no, nobody wants to do that. So my question to you is, are, you know, do all nurses kind of hope to, to graduate out of so, sort of those, um, you know, very, very hands-on tasks? Or, or, or is, do, are some okay, some nurses okay with, you know, doing that for the entirety of their careers? Yeah, Uh, I mean, there definitely are a lot of people that um, end up wanting to go to grad school to further their career to not be at the bedside. But, uh, you know, there's also a large, I mean, majority of nurses that end up staying bedside nurses. And while, you know, wiping butts isn't (laughs) the most glorious or the most um, enticing part of the job. You know, it's, it is part of it and it's part of, like I said earlier, that relationship that you build with your patients, it, that's part of it also being there for them when they're at their most vulnerable, um, and not making them feel uncomfortable trying to lighten the situation when it's somebody that otherwise is able to completely care for themselves, especially. So, yeah, I think a lot of people don't like it, but there are a large majority that, embrace that as part of as part of our job even though it's not the most glorious part so you you do see yourself kind of uh at the bedside for the long haul just because of the reasons you've mentioned yeah yeah um I the furthest I would want to go away from the bedside is um being an educator teaching teaching students or 
um, or new nurses how to care for patients. But even in that situation, I'm going to be at the bedside uh, working with the with working with those new nurses to to teach them. So, yeah, I see myself at the bedside. You've had an interesting dichotomy in terms of the the fields you worked in, right? You did you do pulmonary medicine now, but you also did uh, psychiatry earlier in your career. Uh, how do you alter your approach as a nurse when working with these different patient populations? Yeah, so uh, when I was working in psychiatry, it was a lot more of an emotional and mental job rather than a physical job, which I feel like um, my, my work in pulmonary medicine is. Um, most of the psych patients were uh, independent in their care for themselves. So it was really just uh, when I started learning how to talk with them and learning how to um, how to have them open up and, and feel comfortable opening up with you. And I feel like I have needed to use all of those skills that I learned when I was working in psych in my job now, but now I use a little bit more of the physical um, tasks of being a nurse and having to care for somebody when they aren't able to, to take care of themselves. And that's can, can range from, you know, wiping their butts or giving them medications, teaching them how to, how to take medications at home and um, helping them walk even. Yeah. I like what you pointed out there that um, one, one patient population is, is sort of very independent on the physical level. Um, whereas obviously the other isn't. Um, so, so an interesting kind of nuance there. The, the big question I think that's often talked about uh, with nurses is sort of this uh, hierarchy in our healthcare system, right? Do you feel that, generally speaking, are nurses' opinions valued when it comes to making clinical decisions and, and really other uh, decisions in the healthcare field? I think that definitely um, it can vary based on the individual person that you're working with. Um, we have at Henry Ford, it's a teaching hospital, so we do have residents of um, all different years that I work with. And sometimes you get new residents, new doctors that are very prideful and then and don't don't want to take the nurse's advice. Um, but then you also get, I would say, more doctors that are very open to listening to the nurses that have more experience than they do and who are at the bedside more frequently. Uh, I do wish oftentimes that more doctors would take, would listen to us, uh, to the nurses concerns and, and thoughts on their care. Um, but it just depends on, on who you're working with and how, how comfortable they are with taking your concerns seriously, or if they, feel like they're concerned if they're not concerned with the with the problem that you're addressing then just just depends on the doctor sure can you elaborate on like more of what uh a healthy you know doctor nurse relationship should look like in terms of communication and splitting up of responsibilities when caring for a patient and then even i guess beyond that you know where do 
other roles come in, like a physician's assistant, you know, a, a CNA, a certified nurse assistant. Um, how, how should that kind of dance among those individuals play out? Yeah, so um, nursing assistants are uh, technically work below the nurse. So I, as a nurse, delegate some tasks to my uh, certified nursing assistants, such as um, helping them to the bathroom, giving them baths, and helping them eat and such like that, um, as well as taking vital signs and drawing blood. And then there's certain tasks that uh, nurses have to complete, such as assessments and um, administering medications. And then nurses do most of the communication with the doctors and with um, like social work and case managers who help to, to organize care after discharge from the hospital. And uh, then doctors kind of are, are supposed to be, you know, we have internal medicine doctors on our floor and they communicate with the other specialty doctors uh, if, if they're needed for the patient. So I, a, a healthy communication relationship between doctors and nurses. Um, you know, nurses spend the most time at the bedside with the patient. And oftentimes we are able to pick up on things that are off with the patient before doctors are. And so as a nurse, if I'm going to a doctor saying, you know, I'm concerned about uh, this patient because of whatever reason with, you know, on pulmonary medicine, something to do with their breathing or their, the patients simply stating that they feel off and that they can't breathe as well, then I would expect the doctor to come assess the patient and place orders for either diagnostic tests or medications as necessary. That kind of leads me to my next question. Um, just an aside, I listened to a, a podcast um, where Dr. Danielle Offrey uh, was interviewed. She's an internist at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. She just wrote a book on medical error called uh, When We Do Harm. And her, her one point that uh, resonated with me was that um, in order to reduce, I guess, medical error is a, is a a big issue that often goes unnoticed uh, in the medical field. And she was looking at this idea of the near miss, right? It's, it's, it, there's so much under the surface about near misses that we don't uh, understand when it comes to having errors and, and, and healthcare. And, and she was saying the, the one point is we need to empower nurses uh, who can currently not speak up to the, to the hierarchy. So what you're saying, right, is what, what you just said was that, you know, you're kind of on the, 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 at the bedside viewing all these things and, you know, a healthy communication channel would be that you can, you know, disclose these things to your, your doctor and help uh, limit the amount of errors or, 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 or bad outcomes or whatever. So my question is, I guess, uh, is, is change, do you think change is needed so n nurses will feel more, more supported to speak up uh, in these sorts of situations to help uh, limit medical error? Yeah, I mean, and I think it comes from med school and then the education that they're receiving during their residency in which 
which residents above them are teaching them, uh, you know, to be to be receptive to nurses' concerns. And on the flip side, some of them are being taught, you know, to to be confident in their thoughts and to to go based on their assessments um, more frequently than listening to the nurses. So I do think that it. I mean, I don't know much about what exactly. Uh, residents are and med students are taught in in their classes, but um, I do think that it should be emphasized the the importance of paying attention to the nurses' concerns and really taking them seriously. Another issue I've heard around um, the field of nursing is dealing with with patient uh, conduct. Or have have you seen this to be a problem? Um, like in your work where, um, you know, nurses aren't respected by the patient, by the patients. And are there some like measures you would like to see to improve the the patient respect for the staff? Yeah. Uh, being in downtown Detroit, we get a wide variety of patients. And, um, so I, we definitely see a lot of disrespectful patients in the hospital they they range from you know just just being verbally rude um, to being physically aggressive. It's less less frequent on an inpatient floor that we get physically aggressive patients, but it does happen. Um, recently, the the health system did train all of us on nonviolent and uh, psychological de-escalation techniques, which in theory, is very nice to learn these skills so that uh, we can de-escalate upset or agitated patients as, as they come. But there are patients that are repetitively aggressive physically or verbally, and it is frustrating to not have any sort of um, protection on the floor as far as you know, if we call security, it, t- it can take sometimes up to like 10 minutes for them to get there. And if it was an emergency, sometimes that, you know, might be too late where one of our nurses is already is already hurt. So it's there's only so much that that we can do as a hospital. You know, there can't be security officers on every floor because they're not, you know, that's would be a waste of resources during times that they aren't needed, but uh, it is scary that there are so many aggressive patients and we can't always have somebody there right away to to help us, especially being um, a female-dominated field where patients are often not intimidated by us uh, to, to stop their behavior. And the other thing with with physically aggressive patients, you know, if if one of us gets hit or gets hurt, uh, there is no automatic penalty against any like any patient. So you know, if if a police officer or an emergency um, medical technician, EMT, paramedic, if they get hurt in the field, it's an automatic uh, I think felony against them. And if a nurse gets hurt in the hospital 
we have to personally decide to press charges. Nothing is automatically happen, happen and you have to, you know, reach out and do all those things on your own. So having, you know, that backup behind you, knowing that these patients know that if they hurt me, they're, they're going to get some sort of punishment to them would be helpful as well. Yeah, I could see how that, that would be a frustrating double standard, um, like you said, about law enforcement and, and emergency personnel. What do you actually, a couple follow-ups, what, what are you actually trained to do? You mentioned the de-escalation techniques, but um, what, what, are, what, are the, what do those entail and why perhaps have they kind of fall short in, in managing some of these difficult patients? Yeah, a majority of it is how to talk to a patient when they're upset to try and limit how much, you know, how much it escalates um, as to not upset them even more, basically. And the nonviolent part, the physical part of it that we learn is really just to escape any sort of hold that they have on you. So if, you know, they're trying to choke you, if they're trying to grab your arm, uh, we're taught how to get our arm or get free of their hold. Um, but not, we're not trained on how to, you know, we're not allowed to fight back in any way, which does make sense being medical professional. We don't want to cause any harm to our patients, but we're not able to, to hold them down or anything. Uh, without security present. And you said like a number of these are just uh, individuals are often, um, you know, sort of repeats at your hospital. Is that, are, are they kind of coming um, to the hospital, do you think for, for reasons like they, they can't seek out healthcare other places or they're looking for, for other resources? Uh, I think a lot of them are, have chronic illness and, being in Detroit where it is, uh, there is a lot of poverty. They aren't able to see uh, primary care physicians due to a number of reasons. Um, so then they do end up in the hospital, but I don't, th- I, I don't know what is causing them exactly to be aggressive or violent. You know, there's no one, no one reason for it. Uh, just, just depends, you know, on the person. Sure. I want to shift gears and, and talk about uh, the elephant in the room, right? COVID-19. We're still kind of going through it, uh, unfortunately, and hopefully we'll see the light at, at the end of the tunnel soon. Um, can you sort of give us a timeline of, of you know, COVID at your hospital and, and paint us a picture of, of how things have escalated and then de-escalated? Yeah. So, uh you know, we all started hearing about it, and then about a week later, we got our first case on my on my unit. And what, what, around what uh, this was like mid March, or yeah, this was like around yeah mid March. Um, so yeah, we got our first patient. We were all very nervous. You know, it was a very um, nobody knew much about about this coronavirus. Uh, the novel coronavirus of 2019. And so it was very scary to be taking care of these patients because we didn't know what isolation precautions, what like uh, personal protective equipment we needed to be wearing for sure and what would protect us from getting the virus. 
so a lot of us were very nervous and then you know going home to to families and some people have like you know have a whole family husband kids and uh to be possibly taking it home to them was also very scary for us so that was like mid-march we got that first patient and then um just like probably not even a week after that first patient they called i was actually the the charge nurse at the time they called me and said we're going to be turning your entire floor into a COVID floor, which means that they're going to be filling all of our rooms with COVID patients. Uh, and so that was, everybody was even more nervous because previously there was a chance you wouldn't be taking care of care of that one patient that we had on our floor. But now, you know, the whole unit was going to be COVID patients. So there was kind of no escaping it at that point. Uh and then we had all COVID patients for probably until early May. And then early May, as the numbers started dropping, uh, more of our regular patients started coming back to the hospital and, and the COVID patients were decreasing. There wasn't as many that needed to be admitted. Um, and then now there's, I, I was looking today in the whole Henry Ford system. So I think there's five hospitals overall. There's only uh, 25 patients with positive COVID tests and like 45 awaiting, awaiting results of their tests. So uh, a lot, a lot fewer, fewer cases that are hospitalized now compared to at the, at the peak of it all. And uh, there are, in our hospital, there's only, there are four floors that can still take COVID patients. All of the other ones have been deep cleaned and are now considered, you know, clean units where, where no COVID patients are allowed to be admitted. So, and one, my unit is one of the ones that can have it, but thankfully, since the numbers are so low, it's, it's far and few between that we are seeing them. So you were in pulmonary medicine like before this, so you already knew a lot about lung function and, and uh, you know, the respiratory system. Can you just walk us through, right, a, a patient comes into Henry Ford Hospital uh, with suspicions of having COVID. What, what's kind of the sequential steps of uh, evaluating them and treating them? Yeah, so if, uh, when, they're, when they come to the emergency room, they're asked if they have had any of the uh, symptoms of COVID in the past two weeks, or if they have known exposure to somebody that has tested positive in the past two weeks. Um, and if they have any of those symptoms or have had exposure, they're automatically tested for COVID. And if they test positive, they, you know, stay for, stay, on their isolation throughout. If they test negative, it's um, their their medical tests and everything are reviewed by our infectious disease doctors to make sure that there are no uh, still no suspicion that they could have it and it could be a, a false negative, which is pretty frequent with the coronavirus test just because it's so new. Uh, so everything has to be 
second checked with with infectious disease before we treat them as as a regular patient. Um, some ways that they can tell uh, if a patient might have coronavirus, there's a lot of different uh, blood lab tests that they can look at and see if numbers are elevated. And then uh, chest x-rays and CT scans to look at their lungs to see if it, it looks like they have uh, any sort of pneumonia that, uh, I don't know exactly what the difference between regular pneumonia and then COVID pneumonia is, but the infectious disease team is able to kind of weed out what, which is which and which they have uh, suspicions for. And then uh, as far as their treatment, you know, it, it's ever changing with, with this new COVID because there just isn't a lot of research on it yet. Uh, so at the beginning, there wasn't, we were all very unsure of what would treat it. Um, we're still not 100% positive, but different things that I have seen is the, um, that Plaquenil, um, a lot of patients are just getting zinc and vitamin C. And then there's a lot of new drugs that are in research. So um, a lot of research studies are being done at Henry Ford, as well as convalescent plasma. So that's if, uh, if somebody has been positive for COVID and recovered from COVID, they can donate plasma, uh, which would then have the antibodies that help fight uh, the disease. And that can be transfused similar to um, just regular blood to help the patient fight off fight off the coronavirus. Um, and uh, we've seen, I mean, it, the, the success of different medications really ranges on the person. Um, we're kind of all waiting to see what the research studies are finding with the different treatment options on, on what has been working the best. Um, and, you know, at the beginning of it all, it was because there was so everybody was so unsure of what would treat it at all. Patients were kind of like, they'd be stable. And then kind of on the flip of a switch, they would go downhill and we'd have to send them to the intensive care unit to be intubated or just for closer monitoring because uh, we weren't able to monitor them as closely with, with three to four patients on our unit. But now as, as research has come out and as, uh, knowledge is growing on COVID. Patients are doing, seem to be doing a lot better and um, are able to be going home much quicker now. So a couple of follow-ups on that. Did you, you, you administer the medications to a lot of these patients, correct? Correct. Yeah. Um, so did you uh, at all use hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir, the ones that were pretty frequently in the news? Yes. Yeah, we did. Okay. And uh, I guess, like you said, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's mixed results across the board. Um, but interesting to to know that I know uh, back here in the Northeast, um, at least in the you know I I can't remember to be honest. I don't want to I don't want I don't want to quote something and be wrong on it. So I believed it was also being used at some select hospitals in New York City. Maybe that's what I can leave it at. Because <laughs> I'm sure I'm not an expert. And I was uh 
you know, doing my remote research work while this was all going on in New York City. So yeah. Um, and so the other thing was, you were were you on the intensive care unit where the the respirators were, or no? No, I was not. Um, which I am thankful for. <laughs> that would have been a lot. I think a lot harder to to take care of those patients and, and deal with. Yeah. deal with those patients there you you already alluded to to some of it right that the, the the whole pandemic is scary right but can you kind of just talk about um the escalation of the emotions like did it feel like the hospital was really especially when we like you didn't know how you know steep the curve was going to get what was the hospital in crisis mode and like did you kind of feel that you know, internally in your body as well, right? Just like this, this feeling of, of crisis, uh, an impending crisis. Yeah, it uh, definitely felt it all over the hospital. Um, nationwide, you know, there was a shortage of personal protective equipment, um, including, you know, masks and, and gowns and everything to protect us from this virus. And that was one of the scariest parts is that, each day, you know, walking into work, we were unsure if we were going to have all of the equipment that we needed to stay safe from this virus. And, uh, you know, coming to work terrified that you won't be protected is a scary feeling, you know, that, that possibly you're going to have to reuse the same mask for multiple different patients and multiple different days. So, um, yeah, that was definitely the biggest part of like, th- we, the whole hospital, we we're in crisis mode, we're preserving any gowns and masks that we have, uh, limited staff in the rooms. And, uh, yeah, so that, that was definitely, the hospital was definitely in crisis mode, especially at the beginning. Uh, it probably took about, about a, a month or so to, um, for the hospitals to catch up with their protective equipment and, and for all of us to feel safe and sure that when we come into work, we're going to have the, the protection equipment that we need. The other thing we haven't mentioned is that, um, that you contracted COVID. Um, can you just talk about like sort of the, that the experience of getting it and then re- having to return to work and, and just like the, once again, sort of the, the emotions with that? Yeah, so um, thankfully I had a very mild case of COVID, which I'm very, very thankful for. Um, there was a day that I was I was at work and I kind of felt, you know, like I had like the chills of a fever uh, towards the end of the day, but I took my temperature multiple times, never had a, I didn't have a fever at work. So I thought, you know, maybe the the it's an old building. Maybe the heating and cooling is just a little off. And so I'm just feeling cold. Right. Then as I'm leaving work, walking to my car, I got this overwhelming dizziness as I was walking, like vision blacking out. And that was when I was like, something is definitely wrong. This is not normal. I've been drinking water. I'm not, you know, dehydrated to be this dizzy. And uh, then a few hours after I got home from work, I took my temperature again, and I did have a fever of 102 about, and 
that was the moment that I was like, I was terrified. I thought, you know, because in the hospital, I'm seeing the worst of these patients that, that are getting coronavirus. So my, I just am terrified that all of these terrible things are going to happen to me. My mind automatically goes to the worst case scenario. Um, the next morning, I woke up and still had a fever. So I, uh, the hospital offered free testing, uh, same day testing for hospital staff. So I uh, contacted my manager, let her know that I was having these symptoms, went and got tested. And at that point, it was taking a few days to come, for results to come back. So I didn't find out. That was a Friday that I got tested. And I found out Tuesday morning that I did test positive for COVID. And then, of course, I have to tell my family that I tested positive and um, that was a scary, like nerve wracking experience too, to have to tell my parents that, that I did test positive for COVID, um, and having to knowing that they were going to be worrying about me too. Um, after that first day, I developed a cough and shortness of breath. Thankfully, my fever only lasted about 24 hours. And then I had a cough for about a week to a week and a half. And then I had to be symptom free for three days before I could return to work. So I went back to work two weeks after, after I was originally tested for, for COVID. Uh, going back to work, I was excited to get out of my house because <laughs> I was um, completely isolated from the world for two full weeks and that was extremely boring but um, you know knowing that I was staying safe and keeping other people safe was a good feeling too um, but I was excited to go back to work but nervous at the same time you know there's still I didn't know if I could um, get the virus again there was like rumors going around that you can get it again. And it'll be a lot worse the second time you get it. And just the being so unsure of, of what would happen or if I was truly negative for, if I truly had fully recovered from the virus or not. Um, it was a nerve wracking time, but, but I was excited to get back and take care of patients again. And, um, I was definitely, I think, more aware of making sure that I was truly taking all the precautions that I could um, in the patient's room, as I always had been, but even in the hallways when I'm just with my coworkers, being extra conscious of, of taking all the measures that we could to stay safe. Yeah, glad, it, glad you recovered well and, and you were able to get back to work. I'm sure, like you said, telling your family, though, that must have been, um, especially if you had been in contact with them, that could have been a, a nerve-wracking experience. But, um, you know, glad it's worked out for you. A couple more uh, big-picture things about COVID. It seems like one of the predominant insights, right, of this pandemic is that um, this, this disease disproportionately affected people of color. 
So being in downtown Detroit, was that, I imagine that was, that was pretty evident uh, to you. And can you just, just describe, I guess, can, can you just say there was a lot of, was there a lot of evidence that, you know, uh, in the, the patient populations you were seeing that this was the case? Yeah. Um, you know, it's overall our patient population is predominantly people of color just because of the location that we are in. But um, it was definitely very apparent that the people that we are seeing were um, predominantly African-American and also people that live in poverty uh, that aren't able to fully control their chronic conditions uh, on a regular basis. And so when or if they contracted COVID, uh, they were definitely at higher risk of more complications and therefore were admitted into the hospital um, needing, needing extra care than people that might have more resources and able to take care of their chronic conditions regularly. Yeah, hopefully we can, especially this will open our eyes to, to, to make some changes in healthcare to make sure a lot of those, you know, pre-existing conditions and aren't uh, disproportionate uh, in our populations. Yeah. Um, I guess lastly, right, uh, the, the doctor I mentioned earlier, Dan- Dr. Danielle Offrey, uh, internist at Bellevue, she was kind of talking about an imminent second wave and um, it's pretty, are, are you guys gearing up for it at Henry Ford? I think they are gearing up for it. I definitely feel like the hospital is better prepared now for any uh, wave of COVID, increasing COVID patients to come back again. Um, and how to take care of COVID patients and uh, non-COVID patients at the same time in the hospital uh, better than, than we were able to when it was kind of a, a surprise for for the hospital to be treating so many patients with COVID. Um, but, you know, thankfully, the in Michigan, the cases, as things have started to open up, the cases are rising again, which is unfortunate. But um, I we haven't seen a huge increase in hospitalized patients as the, as the positive uh, numbers have grown. So um, my hope is that more people, um, you know, as people are wearing masks and people that are at high risk are staying home as much as they can still, um, there won't be a huge surge in hospitalized patients, but there is always that chance. But I think that the hospital is better prepared this time than, than at the beginning of it all. Good to hear. Well, hopefully, you know, it's always... Always better to see something the second time than the first time. So, right, yeah. I'm sure you'll you'll be uh, prepared for what's ahead. All right, we're gonna transition into our lightning round a series of fast-paced questions that tell us more about you. I got a good okay. one. I got a I got a I got a softball here for you on the first one. I know you had a good time at the University of Michigan, hanging out on South U and State Street. Which one of your friends is the uh, you know of the of the people you hung out with, which one was the best dancer? Oh, uh, definitely you, John. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a true softball, right? <laughs> that was easy, easy answer there. Actually, I'll, I'll give you this opportunity to real quick. Uh, you got any uh, Michigan memories you want to give a shout out to? 
Oh, I will always miss football Saturdays, tailgating, and going to the games. That, those were some of my best memories, and, and I definitely miss them. Well, I knew, uh, I know you uh, enjoyed barefoot wine back in the day. Uh, what's, your, what's your go-to drink these days? I'm still a big wine drinker. Uh, <laughs> I do still love, <laughs> I still love a barefoot wine. Um, and it may have gone even cheaper with Aldi wine. It's uh, uh, financially cheaper, but just as good as barefoot wine. Uh, <laughs> what's, what's a hidden gem in Detroit? Oh, man. Um, oh, gosh. As far as a, a, a bar or a restaurant or anything? Anything, yeah. Hole, some hole in the wall. Um, okay. I love the bar, and it's connected to a restaurant. Restaurant's called Penny Reds. Uh, fried chicken, the best fried chicken that I think I've ever had. Lastly, best part of, about being a nurse? Seeing people, seeing patients get better. Uh, yeah, seeing the transition of when they come into the hospital being very sick to helping them get better and go home to their families is the best part. Right on. Sarah Kelly, thanks for joining the show. Thank you so much, John. That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.